Hi, this is Greg Lamond, and you're listening to the Velocast at the 2016 Tour de France with Scott Raw, John Galloway, and Ashley House. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Velocast analysis of the 2016 Tour de France. After all the drama and supervening tragedy of the past few days, it was almost a relief to have a stage where next to nothing happened. With everything that's been going on and with the final punishing week ahead, it really came as no surprise that the riders would have wanted to take things a bit easy. Which was a bit of a pity for them as a block headwind for the vast majority of the 208 kilometres from Montelimar to Parc d'Oiseau made for a really difficult day in the saddle. When the peloton finally made it to the Bird Park, it was Mark Cavendish who outsprinted Alexander Kristoff and Petter Sagan to make it four wins in this year's tour, despite the protestations of one Marcel Kittel. Can't talk. Too sleepy now. Wake up, John. Come on. That was unbelievable. Um, and actually, Inject yeah, some you, caffeine into your eyeballs. You're quite right. You can't blame the riders. A block headwind on a transition stage is a recipe for conservative racing, particularly when you've got the final week coming up in the tour, which is in prospect. I mean, some brutal racing coming. Um, and, you know, the, it was clearly going to be a sprinter's day. They let the brake get away, and we have to give a, a huge amount of credit to uh, to Martin Elmiger um, and to Jeremy Roy and to their, their breakaway companions because they worked hard and, you know, they got good, good publicity for their teams. And we had that heartwarming moment where they shook hands as, the, you know, the brake was finally hoovered up. Um, but, you know, what we actually had was essentially the longest foreplay for a sprint in cycling history that I can remember. It made Milan San Remo look like um, a vine clip. It just went on forever and ever and ever and ever. And the only thing that I really, really was enthusiastic about until the sprint, which was a cracking sprint, really enjoyed the sprint, great bit of racing at the end, was it was fantastic, given recent events, to see the crowds out with their tricolours, um, you know, the, the the French people out in the road supporting the cyclists. And, you know, the tour starting to move away from the reflective moment of that deserted time trial yesterday, you know, where the crowds were, were so sparse compared to what we normally see beside a Tour de France stage, back towards normality, um, the roadside in France. So I think there was a lot that we could take from it on a kind of cultural, on a, you know, just on a, a human level. But as bike racing, it was dull as shit. <laughs> I was forced to tweet towards the end before the, the impending sprint. Really, this is just the peloton using cycling as a way to portray Wagnerian opera. I think a couple of them caught a squirrel halfway through the stage. <laughs> well, I did screen grab Jeremy Roy at, at one point fiddling with his Garmin and said, well, you know, the day's not a complete washout. It looks like somebody's managed to capture Pikachu. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it was, right, you know, it was dull. And, and I don't blame the riders. That ride going uh, north just put them directly in the path of the Mistral that has so affected racing over the past couple of days. And with it being, as you say, the the transition stage towards the Alps, which we start tomorrow, there was no way that we were going to see anything other than a bunch sprint. And as, as Inner Ring pointed out on Twitter, if it hadn't been for those four guys 
Uh, Jeremy Roy that you mentioned and uh, Martin Elmiger along with Alex Howes of Cannondale and Cesar Benedetti from, from Bora we would just have been looking at a very rectangular looking peloton all day long yeah, I, I, I'm the first person to blame them for, for dull racing. You know, stage three, I was absolutely bloody fuming at the peloton. You know, that was such a turgid day's racing. But today, I have no blame to apportion to them. You know, we've all been out, we've all ridden into headwinds. It's miserable even if you're a pro cyclist. You know, you're going a few kilometres per hour faster than normal humans are. But you all, I mean, we know, you know, Scott, you live in Scotland, for God's sake, how... how absolutely soul-destroying it is to ride into a headwind for hour after hour, and that's what they had to do today. And I'm actually surprised that they managed to, you know, get enough of their juices flowing at the end to give us a, a really good sprint finish. So, you know, what we had was hours and hours of bugger all happening, and then a sprint. Actually, I would like to complain about that comparison to us knowing what it's like to, to ride into a block headwind. These buggers have got it easy. A Scottish headwind would actually chill the face off you. At least, yeah. it, you know, with the Mistral, it's a lovely warm breeze in the in the south of France, so they've got no reason to complain. But yes, yeah, but I bet they don't have buck fast in their bottles. Like <laughs> uh, to the sprint itself, it was interesting. Uh, yeah, I mean, what we we actually saw a very clear divide. I mean, I've, I've noticed, and we've talked about it often uh, when we're not recording, the increasing polarisation of fans uh, when it comes to cycling. You know, you, instead of you know being a fan of one rider and being able to appreciate the exploits of others, uh, and I've got to say, most of our lovely subscribers are still like that. You know, intelligent, compassionate people who understand the viewpoints of various riders. More and more, it's you either love a rider or you hate them. And we saw that today with uh, with the sprint from Mark Cavendish. Um, we had an amazing running from Etix Quickstep, uh, where you know they started with what five k to go, and just wound it up and wound it up. And in the end, it was Sabatini who was you know with only Kittle on his wheel who finished the lead out perfectly. And I thought Kittle went a wee bit early, but glued to Kittle's wheel was Mark Cavendish came past the big German and had him well beaten. And at that point, Kittle just jumped slightly left and Cav did a Buhani-like lurch to the right. Um, and it, it looked quite dangerous. I mean, it didn't affect the stage finish result in the slightest. Kittle was beaten, Cav was in front of him. Job done, game over. But, you know, you had a, a huge bunch of the fans going... Cav didn't deviate. That was a perfectly normal line. And then <laughs> you had another huge bunch of fans going, he nearly took Kittle out. The man could have died. So um, Cav's, Cav's sprinting was slightly less straight liney than maybe it should have been. Um, but, you know, the, the commissaires upheld the victory. Um, and I think they were right to do so. Kittle was a beaten man at that point. Didn't affect the result in the slightest. But to claim it was a good line... Get to Specsavers, eh? <laughs> I think, oh, I mean, had he, and I believe he didn't actually complain at the end, he just remonstrated with, with Cavendish uh, as as Cav crossed the line. But Marcel Kittel appealing that uh, that stage finish is, is a bit like the, the Wehrmacht uh, appealing the Normandy landings, to be honest. But it's a case of, hang on, you bloody started it here. Aye, job done. Um, it, it was a messy sprint, but, you know, we're, we're deep into the tour. These guys have got kilometre after kilometre of hard, hard roads in their legs. It's hardly surprising it's a messy sprint. You know, there are, what, at this point in the tour, what you're looking at is who survived best. 
You know, it's who's least tired, who's still got the most zip in their legs. And the answer is Mark Cavendish. And by a four country. Stages. I mean, four stages. And by a country mile as well. I mean, I, I mean you're right to point out how well Ethics Quick Step did in, in the run-in, and it was perfectly done. It's just, unfortunately, their sprinter was Mark Cavendish today and not Marcel Kittel, yeah. um, because Marcel had you know nothing in in terms of of the ability that Mark Cavendish had to come round about him and just leave him for dead. I mean the yep. deviations that both of them made and and the the way in were nothing in comparison to the way that Cav actually just went past Kessel today. There was nobody was beating him, and as we keep saying. You know, this is such a surprise that he's still here, still enjoying his sprinting when he's got Rio coming up. And I guess the only question that we're still asking ourselves is, is he actually doing damage to his Rio preparations by continuing to rack up stage wins here at the Tour? I think he probably is, but it's the Tour, you know, Mm. that's it. And I could easily see him now carrying on to the Champs-Élysées because with the kind of form he's got, who would bet against him? Yeah, you know, even with a week in the Alps in his legs, he's still, you know, the other sprinters who he's beaten now will have those miles in their legs as well. And for Cav, you know, he he's talked long and often about how important that Jean's Elysee stage is, and you know, he really cares about it. He says it's almost the Sprinters World Championship, and I can genuinely, having you know, having thought he'd go before the Pyrenees, then after the Pyrenees, he's still winning. I think he'll be there for the Jean's Elysee now, which probably means he's on a you know on a bus to an airport as we speak. <laughs> uh, good to see John Degen call back up there, finishing fourth mm. today. Ahead of Marcel Kittel. Um, and, uh, I mean, there was some good company in the sprint. Um, the usual guys, your, your, your Brian Cockard and your Andre Greipels were top ten. But that top five actually is... It's I, I really like to see it. You saw Alexander Christoph for Team Katusha, who did a lot of work on the run-in, um, along rather bizarrely with Kofidis at one point. Uh, but, you know, Team Katusha... Red jerseys, you know, it's, it's so difficult. You he know, probably I, got confused, yeah, didn't he? Yeah. Uh, but, you know, he was up there and he, he more or less, in fact, he explicitly said nobody can live with Cav just now. He thinks he's got good legs, just can't live with Cav. John Degen called up and forth, put a huge smile on my face to see him back after that horrible, you know, on the training road incident that they had at the start of the year. And who pops up in third? Peter Sagan. You know, what, what I mean, a, a hair's breadth behind Christoph. I mean, just such, such strength and depth on any sort of terrain. Um, you know, putting more points towards that green green jersey total. So it was it was a really nice top five. Um, and although there were deviations in the sprint from both Kittle and Cavendish, the result, I think, was allowed to stand perfectly fairly. You know, none of those shenanigans affected the result. And we have a, a dream tour for Dimension Data continues, a dream tour for Mark Cavendish continues, and Perch again, you know, nudges ever closer to a mathematical certainty that he's going to take green. So I've got to say, it was incredibly dull, but the last 200 metres was cracking. Yes, I agree with that. Hey, I've got another, uh, an idea rather, for another jersey at, at the tour. The uh, Mayo de Triste Trombone. And for for anybody that doesn't speak French, that's uh, the sad trombone jersey. It's a team competition I'm I'm planning on. And basically I'm awarding this to Cannondale, who have to appear on the podium every day and be accompanied by the aforementioned sad trombone of the title. Alex Howes actually today um, was... 
even Carlton Kirby is mocking his classes now. That's how, that's how bad things have got for uh, you know. Well, this isn't team. a sartorial thing. This is simply the fact that. Cannondale have done absolutely nothing in this tour. And, and you mentioned Carlton. I, I noticed Carlton bringing up this statistic up that they haven't had a rider in the top 10 of any stage of this mm. entire tour. Yeah, and who was their best guy today? Probably Navaradouskas in 17th-ish. Um, I mean, they... they I mean, well, where they, I'm going They could this. actually sell their licence to, to Oleg Tinkoff. Because <laughs> he'll probably change his mind and want to come back into don't, the sport in a don't, month Don't, don't, don't. I mean, and unless this is kind of reverse psychology, just don't even countenance that kind of nonsense, okay? I mean, what, where I'm kind of going with today this... Today he was cycling Donald Trump. I saw Joe Dombrowski actually asking if uh, Donald Trump doesn't win the presidency, would he bring back the Tour de Trump in America? I'm going to be having words with Joe Dombrowski over this. Yeah, well, uh, uh, the reason I'm, I'm kind of bringing up Cannondale again is, uh, for me, Alex Howes, or rather Cannondale, shouldn't be one of the teams who are keen to make the break. Given, you know, the, the talk about them, largely generated by themselves, it has to be said, coming into Grand Tours, they see themselves as a Grand Tour team. They're a World Tour team who need good results in races like the Tour de France. So mm -hmm. Alex House being in a breakaway on stage 14, being the kind of showing the jersey off uh, the, the most across the entire tour, isn't something that should be the case with Cannondale. No, they should be competing. And I mean, the main talk about them has been from us, and not just from us, from all sorts of observers, has been how disappointing Pierre Roland has been. Um, you know, it's um, that I said it last year. I'm going to say it again. I'll be surprised if they're here. You know, in a, in a couple of years, they seem like they're they're bouncing along the bottom of the world tour, and it's a shame because they've provided us with a lot of entertainment over the years. But you know, they're not doing that anymore. Well, now I think it's time to hand over to a raconteur and owner. I noticed today of a little yellow book, Mister Ashley House. And welcome to Ashley House. Um, we've had some difficulty catching up with Ashley over the last couple of days because um, he was stuck down a gorge in the Ardèche and, of course, the previous day he was he was stuck in horrible winds up Vaughan too. Um, it's good to catch up with you today because it's been a quiet day, Ashley. We haven't had you know a huge amount of racing. It was a brilliant sprint with a wee bit of controversy about uh, Mark Cavendish's line. But mainly I wanted to talk to you about how the Peloton and, and all of the support staff are adapting to you know the aftermath of the, the tragic and horrific events in Nice, is, is the atmosphere still, um, you know, one of reflection in, in the Tour de France, or are things starting to move back towards normal now? Uh, things, oh, hello, by the way, John, I didn't say hello. Uh, lovely to, see, to speak to you again after a few days. It's been too long, mate. I mean, I, I've missed you. <laughs> um, yeah, the atmosphere here is, I would say, still, it's still not back to normal by any means, and not least because this morning there were uh, rumours that the Peloton were riding very slowly. It wasn't quite clear what they were riding slowly about, whether it was a protest against their own safety and la or lack of their, uh, lack thereof, or whether it was out of respect for Nice. But in effect, it's sort of the same thing in, in many ways. Um, so it's definitely not back to normal. But today, it, the stage and the, the atmosphere, I suppose, was a little bit back to normal. The, the crowds weren't, weren't quite as large as one might expect, I think, in this region, particularly for a stage like today. But there are, there are still worries in France about going to public events, that's for sure. The security presence is much higher than it has been, than I've ever seen before, actually. 
but unfortunately, in the uh, in the and apologies for my language in the shitty world that we live, I'm afraid you know there's there's not a lot you can do to to stop crazy people who want to do hateful things. Do you know the thing that got me? I mean, we watched the, the chaos on Vong too, and I, I'll get your thoughts on that before you know before you go away. But it really struck me what a privilege it is for us as fans to be able to get such close access to the riders, but also how inherently vulnerable an event it is. You know, the largest annual sporting event in the world, and all it would take was would be some nutter with bad intent, and you'd be facing a tragedy almost anywhere on the roads of France. You know, it's 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 incredibly vulnerable, and that must be a huge worry for the organisers. Yeah, it is. And I think you said two nights ago, John, on after the Spontu stage, either you or Scott did, that actually, even though they're completely incomparable, the fact that so many spectators could get that close and cause so much havoc, if someone did have that malintent, it would not be difficult, in, in my opinion. And I think the ISO needs to, well, we've, we've all talked for months and years about how the, the UCI and ASO need to be very, very reflective and very, very quickly do that about rider safety about spectator safety as well don't forget uh, and about the safety of everyone involved in bike racing because there are now so many things so many incidents so many happenings so many potential disasters so many near misses we've already seen deaths this year in bike racing we've now seen uh, we've we've seen spectators being hit not only by by motos and cars but also by riders um and you know something has to change and going it, relating that to the Von 2 thing, what happened at Von 2 is it was without a shadow of a doubt, not ASO's fault that it was windy and they had to change the stage, which was the right decision. It was without a shadow of doubt the ASO's fault, to some extent at least, that, that the barriers weren't moved in an appropriate way. What I will say is that apparently they did look at trying to move the barriers down, but there were so many people who had come down from those last six kilometers that actually it was almost physically impossible. But it can't have been physically impossible. And given what happened, at least now we have hindsight, I suppose, given what happened, that now we've got to hope that if anything like that were ever to happen again, whereas top of a stage had to be cancelled, that it would just be done, no matter what it takes. Yeah, because it's rider safety you're talking about. And, and I mean, we all know the decision that was made that day. Um, within the peloton, is is it generally accepted that that was the right decision? I mean, we saw Bauke Mollema and his team lodge a protest. We saw a, a kind of jokey, sarcastic tweet from, from Tom de Milan. But when you're talking to folk in the peloton, are they genuinely genuinely satisfied that the right decision was made on Vaughn 2? No. Absolutely not. Uh, absolutely not. I think I heard you say two nights ago that what was quite refreshing about this or, or unusual was that pretty much it's 50-50. And it's pretty much 50-50 yeah. here on the ground as well. I would say there's a greater number of people who think it was the wrong decision than who think it was the right decision. And I'm one of those. However, what I will say is that had they left it as it stood at the end uh, as the provisional result, that still wouldn't have been just. Uh, what they've done instead, in my opinion, is also not just. Um, and what you and John have, uh, oh, sorry, what you and Scott have, dis- have talked about, in that you can't predict what would have happened in those far in those final few hundred meters. That's absolutely mm-hmm. true. So, so what's the rea- what should they have done? Well, it, the, the first thing that I think is they made the decision far too quickly, far, far, far too mm-hmm. quickly. This was an event that could potentially change the outcome of this bike race, not just any bike race but the Tour de France, it could potentially have changed the outcome of that. Therefore, was it really necessary for them to 
to come to a decision, change those standings so quickly. I don't know how these things work, particularly on the inside. What I do know is that there was a lot of confusion uh, about a lot of the rules. So, um, the, so Richie Poor hit a motorbike. Was the motorbike stopped by a spectator? Actually, the motorbike stopped because there was another motorbike that had, had to stop in front of it. We're still not entirely mm-hmm. sure why that motorbike had to stop, but we can assume, I guess, that it was because of the number of spectators. As you said, why are there so many motorbikes in that part of the course at that stage of the race when it's a narrow road anyway and with all those extra spectators? That all goes back to ISO. We don't know what was going to happen. What we do know is that Balka Mollema was looking pretty strong out of those three. Richie Port was looking blooming strong. I also know that Richie mm. and Balka Mollema both got on, on their bike and went back up the hill. Um, when Richie Port had a mechanical and there was no BMC car around him, did we give him the time back? No, we didn't because it was... The cars should have been there. It's a, te- it's a team sport, cycling. Um, having said all of that... I don't think I've ever seen Juan Antonio Flecha as angry in my life. No, well, uh, you have to remember with Juan Antonio that a terrible, terrible thing happened in 2011 to him and Johnny Hoogland. And, yeah. and both of them have been incredibly badly treated. Um, uh, if the court cases are still going on, they've been let down by teams, by organisations by lawyers as well. So, so those, when an accident happens or an incident happens with a motorised vehicle, it comes very quickly to, to Juan Antonio's, the front of his mind, and I completely understand mm. that. I really do. Um, and and, it, and but pe- people have un- interpreted it slightly wrongly the way he reacted. It wasn't aggression, it's upset that he has. It's not, it's not aggression, yeah. it's upset. Um, to, but basically, to get clear, I, mean, I, could, I could literally rant for hours on this stuff, but um, my conclusion is this, that there are rules if there are rules, then you apply them. If there aren't rules, then you do whatever you like. But if there are rules, you apply them. And, then, and if they're wrong, which they are, by the way, then we then think about it afterwards. There is no right to appeal against a decision by the commissaires. However, as soon as the provisional results were, were, put, were put on air by the organization's uh, host broadcaster, there was a team manager in the tent with the commissaires complaining until they got changed. But once they were changed, the other teams don't have a right to reply. Yeah, I mean, that's true. Dave Brailsford and Chris Froome were in the room with the commissaires, weren't they? Uh, yes, yeah, they were, yeah. Um, and the decision was then made, and, this, and the line is, it's made for sportsmanship reasons, for fair and fair play and sportsman's reasons, which then means anybody else who comes out and says those reasons were wrong is then portrayed as a bad sport. Now, look, I'm, please, please, please don't get me wrong. I, nothing that I say has anything against Chris. I think he's the, he's the most wonderfully lovely guy. He's a phenomenal bike rester, uh, racer. I've been standing talking to Sir David this afternoon. He's a really, really nice guy. I have nothing against any team or any individual at all. It just, to me, is unjust what happened. And it's unjust on a hundred different levels. And I don't know whether they should have maybe got all the teams in a room, to get all the DS in a room together and come to some kind of compromise. If you're going to have a compromise, then... It should be a compromise that everyone agrees on together. I may be being fanciful. I have no idea. but And I've no doubt I'll get lots of abuse for what I've said. But I'm afraid that is just my opinion, I'm afraid. And I tell you, I think it's actually served Chris Froome poorly as well. Because, you know, he's in a situation now where he would be in a narrow lead after his strong time trial. If, you know, if the results had stood and he'd got to the line and, you know, we extrapolate where they would have been without the correction. Yeah. But now, you know, the people who, and there are a huge crowd of people out there who just hate Team Sky and Chris Froome for whatever reason. Now, if he wins, this will be held over his head as an asterisk in his victory. 
You know, it's 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 not fair for anybody. There were no winners on that day on one two. I think. No, I think you're absolutely right. Yeah, no winners, absolutely no winners. Because Chris, you know, whatever you might think of him, whatever you think he does or doesn't do, Chris is a phenomenal bike racer and the best stage racer in the world at this uh, uh, of this generation. And he is not getting the praise that he deserves. He's not getting the support and the applause that he deserves because of the way that people view that. And unfortunately. It's not his fault, but unfortunately what happened on Thursday has just exacerbated that, and it's a, it's a huge, huge shame. A huge shame. Now, we're, we're moving into you know, the, the meat of the race tomorrow. We're into the final week. We've always said, I mean, since you and I started talking before the tour started, that the, you know, the final week was going to be the week. Um, we saw Nairo Quintana um, you know, not looking ready, in my, in my eyes, to take the fight to Team Sky. But we've got a Bauka Mollema who's exceeding my expectations and Adam Yates, who I think still has something in the tank. I think he's still got some reserves. You know, we've got people saying this tour's over. I don't think for a moment it's over. I mean, you're seeing the guys and looking them in the face every day. I mean, is there still is there still some fight in the dogs as the tour enters its finale? Oh, there's definitely fights. There's definitely, definitely fights. Uh, going into the out, Naira Quintana last year was further behind Chris Roon than he is at the moment, by the way, just uh, just to remember. I, I completely agree with you with about Balka Mollema. Uh, yes, he looks great. He looks like he's got potential to really give something else. He looks really strong on Bond too, and he's been a bit of a surprise. And we're all, you know, we're rooting that he can keep it going and keep this race going. But I will just point you back to Stephen Kroisvik, uh, to Esteban Chavez, and to uh, Tom Dumoulin in the last two Grand Tours. And you, and you think, okay, you know, third week, a guy who's never been in that situation before. And I hope and pray that that both he and Adam Yates are going to take it through right up until uh, right up until that last stage. But I, ju- I just don't know. It's definitely not over. I mean, for goodness sake, you know, one Richie Port lost two and a bit minutes by having a puncture. These things happen. Unfortunately, they always seem to happen to Richie and they never seem to happen to Chris. But <laughs> that aside, let's not pretend that this that it's absolutely over. I know we said this last year as well, but the, those last four stages after the second rest day are much harder than they were last year. Much harder. There's the uphill time trial, uh, which is going to suit Naira very, very well indeed. And I think there are still some twists and turns to come in this Tour de France, even if Chris Froome ends up winning it. Absolutely. And I mean, we we were having a discussion on Twitter um, about Nairo Quintana and you quite rightly pointing out that he's no Bernardino uh, because I was saying that if Eno was in the position that Nairo's in just now, you know, he would be gagging for the Alps. Um, it's got to be said, it doesn't take much of a turnaround and suddenly Nairo's putting Chris to the to the sword on the climbs again. You know, there's, there's loads to play out and we may find that Nairo's had a couple of bad days and suddenly, you know, that impassive face decides to dance up the hills again. Yep, maybe. Yeah, yeah, I mean, and I will say as well, don't forget on Alp Duez last year, Naira, had there been two Alp Duez's and, and had Naira done the same to Chris both days, then Naira would have won the Tour de France last year. Now, potentially, there are effectively two Alp Duez's, at least at the end of this tour. So if Naira can do it, do the same two days running, then it's definitely very possible. A few things as a caveat with that, though. One um, is that Unsue, the, uh, the, sport, the director sportif from Movistar, has already started saying that, you know, pretty much, it's too difficult. Sky are too good. He sounds very pessimistic. Mm-hmm. And as we, you and I have talked before, we don't think that the cycling fraternity is clever enough at bluffing to make that a, a clever double bluff. Second thing, mm-hmm. I think that Sky have been incredibly clever this year with their tactics. Uh, and that is they have rested Root Powell's and Michael Land- Mikael Lander 
on all the stages that they did not need, that Chris did not really, really need them. And that means that they're going to be much fresher for that last week, whereas last year they were a, bit, a little bit less fresh. Not Lander, of course, he wasn't there, but certainly Geraint and Wout were much less fresh on that outdoor stage. And that may well be the reason that, uh, that Chris managed, uh, that Nairo didn't manage to get enough time because, uh, sorry, that he did manage to get some time because they were a bit tired. They're going to be much fresher. Yeah, much, much fresher. And, and, the, thir- yeah, and, think- and the third thing just, is just to say the weaknesses that Chris Froome might have had, which are potentially, you might say, descending, potentially, you might say, on the cobbles or, or, in, or in the wind or whatever. Actually, it looks like this, this year we've seen him win descending, uh, descending stages, downhill finishes. We've seen him finishing second on a, on a flat stage. You know, he seems to be getting rid of any potential weaknesses that there might have been. Yeah, I mean he's really strong this year, and I've actually warmed him because he's been a proper a proper bike racer. You know, they, there's there's a, yes, there's an element of calculation that you always get from Team Sky, but he seized his chances with both hands and, and earned out respect. I think. Yeah, I think you're um, right. I think you're right. He's he's definitely earned respect of people because people remember how Greg and uh, and Eno and Philip, how they used to ride. People remember those things that they were opportunists. And Chris has definitely done that. And, and Dave Brailsford has actually said, you know, they've changed their tactics. They've been working on how to surprise teams. And they have surprised their teams. They really have. It's been absolutely brilliant. I mean, as we finish today, Ashley, I mean, I've, I've just, from Scott and I, whenever you see anybody in the, you know, backstage at the tour looking a bit glum, give them a big cuddle from the Velocast. <laughs> okay, <laughs> we'll do that. We'll absolutely do that. And uh, as always, it's a pleasure. I'll take one way, of course, I didn't say on Twitter when we had that conversation, the difference between uh, Eno or, or Merckx or whoever it might have been, the different big differences back then with the race radios were, not, were either non-existent or nothing like what they are now. If we got rid of race radios, it, <laughs> and Greg LeMond will talk about this a lot if you ask him to, get rid of race radios and we'd, all have, we'd be having a much more exciting final seven or eight stages. <laughs> Couldn't agree more. And I tell you, it's a joy to see uh, Bernardino looking. So he's sharing a joke with, with Chris Froome. You know, he clearly sees him as a kindred spirit now. I think Bernard's enjoying Chris's racing this year too. Yeah, I, th- I think we all are. And, and yet again, going back to Thursday, that's what's such a shame is that everybody is enjoying the way that Chris is riding. People are really appreciating the way that Sky have played this this year. It's not predictable. It hasn't just been riding on the front like it, like it has been before. And it's just a real shame that now we're talking about Thursday and the decision of a jury and a, uh, you know, and a mistake by ISO that's led to the times being changed. It's just a, it's a terrible shame. Well, we'll catch up tomorrow. Uh, hopefully we'll get a signal. Um, meanwhile, you've got a long drive tonight or is it quite a relaxing day for you? No, not too bad tonight. We've got um, only just over an hour, which is uh, about two, hour, two or three hours less than we normally have. So tonight we might even be able to have a meal that's not from um, the equivalent of a little chef. Well, get the beers in on me, mate. I'll uh, I'll see you when you get back to Britain. Eh? <laughs> All right. Thanks, John. Thanks, everybody. Take care. So the top 10s for today. Mark Cavendish takes the win ahead of Alexander Kristoff. In third was Peter Sagan. Fourth, John Degenkolb. In fifth, Marcel Kittel. In sixth, Andre Greipel. In seventh, Brian Cocard. In eighth, David Chimalai. In ninth, Christophe Laporte. And rounding out the top 10 was Dylan Gronwegen.
The general classification after stage 14 then is Chris Froome in first, ahead of Baucomolema by 1 minute and 47 seconds. Adam Yates is in third at 2 minutes and 45. Nairo Quintana is in fourth at 2 minutes 59. Alejandro Valverde sits in fifth at 3 minutes and 17. TJ Van Garderen is in sixth at 3 minutes and 19. Roman Bardi is in seventh at 4 minutes and 4, while Richie Port is in eighth at 4 minutes and 27. Dan Martin sits in ninth at 5 minutes and three and rounding out the GC top 10 is Fabio Aru at five minutes and 16. Now then, having dispensed with the tedium of today, tomorrow's start in Bourg-en-Bresse will bring the peloton to the Alps and many of the riders to their knees over the next few days. The 160 kilometres of stage 15 will take them over six categorised climbs, including the first cat called de Bertillon, crested with only 23 kilometres gone, and the Orcat Grand Colombier, ridden in part twice, before the merciful run-in to the finish at Coulouse. Uh, quite exciting. I mean, we've got a, a sawtooth profile, not an ounce of flat road on the, the entire day. Um, you know, finishing up the the, the assets to Grand Colombier, um, and then a, a run in. Now, before this race started, you know, I'm casting my mind back to the dim and distant past a couple of weeks ago. Um, I thought that Chris Room might be a wee bit vulnerable in this kind of stage because of the, you know, it'd be an easy stage for somebody who's a, a demon descender to to take some chances and maybe put some time into his GC rivals. Of course, we've seen one person be a demon descendant <laughs> some time into your GC rivals, uh, and it was Chris Froome. So that's that, you know, out in its arse. Um, I, I, I mean, today might be, a, or tomorrow rather, might be a day where we see um, almost a truce on GC because you know it, it's hard, but it's not absolutely, absolutely brutal. You know, the high point's only, what, 1,500 metres over the Grand Colombier. Mm. Um, but the way this tour is going, I think we'll see some more uh, elimination. I think we'll see uh, GC riders maybe get in trouble at some point due to some harsh pressure from one team or another. And then, you know, pressure put on those guys who are getting in a wee bit of trouble to eliminate them from the GC. I don't think tomorrow will be decisive, but I think we will see GC racing. Oh, I think we're definitely going to see GC racing. I, I'm, and I also agree with you that it won't be decisive, but I think what we will see is some people realising, oh, bloody hell, we're at the Alps now. Time yeah. to, to panic and time to realise that you are more minutes behind in GC than, than you thought you were going to be and, and trying to do something to shake the race up and, and get more time. Maybe with that that feeling that with so many difficult stages still ahead, no one will expect uh, an early attack. And I think maybe we could see an attack. You just talked about descending there and, and Chris Froome being the only one to, to really go for it in terms of a, a descent across the entire tour. Maybe an attack going on the first descent of the, the Grand Colombier mm-hmm. and trying to stay away across the, the Lassettes. I don't know who that's going to be. I mean, I'm kind of somebody like Richie Port would be ideal. He's got nothing to lose. Yeah, exactly. I mean, he he was obviously disappointed by his performance yesterday. Went too hard, I think, too early uh, on the TT. So you're right to say he's got nothing to lose, and and maybe T.G. Van Garderen and Richie Port kind of combining together to try and 
collectively take the race to the rest would be yeah. would be good to see. I'm also interested to see how Adam Yates rides tomorrow because, as I, I think I said yesterday, yes, he's been a revelation, but only in terms of its flowering of the the promise that everyone's been been talking about. And I'm still unsure as to how he's going to perform across the entire three weeks. I went into that third week now. Mm. I mean, third week looming. It's where we get answers about Yates and also actually about. For me, the revelation of this year's Tour, Bauke Mollema. Mm-hmm. We have to see if they can hold up under the pressure of a hard third week. And to, to riders like Naira Quintana, I think three minutes, yeah, it's, it's a big gap, but it's not insurmountable given, again, the parkour that we've got into the Alps across the next few days. So I think he'll wait tomorrow. I don't think he'll do anything. There might be a tentative attack to see how he gets on like on Vaughn 2, but it will be shut down. Uh, At Chuck Valverde out there to see what happens. Well, they did that on Vaughn 2, to be fair. They Mm. did do that, uh, and it was, I mean, it was a very, very weak version of it, but it was still that kind of one-two punch. Alejandro Valverde went out, Team Sky brought him back, and then uh, Quintana tried to attack, and it wasn't the the big attack that I think we were expecting. So yeah, I agree with you. Valverde should go out, and I think Quintana will probably wait to another stage before really trying to put in a dig. Whether yeah. it'll be too little, too late again, we don't know. But um, I think it'll be up to to other riders to, to try and mix it up. And as I say, T.G. Van Garderen and Richie Port might be a good one. And there's also Roman Bardi still sitting. Well, in, in GC at four minutes and four and seventh. Yeah, I mean, he had a really shockingly poor time, <laughs> really. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, he can climb and he can descend. We've seen that in, in the Dauphiné, we've seen that in the Tour. So, yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a stage that might suit him. It could play out any number of ways. I mean, it really could. But, you know, at this point, and we've had, I mean, you and I have been ranting about this all day. I'm I'm really sick of people saying, oh, the tour's finished now. Um, we're into a final week where anything can happen. And yeah, Froome is the overwhelming favourite. I'm not naive enough to think he isn't. But look, but, you, know, you, know, you can go you, back you to... You haven't been watching the Tour de France if you think it's finished. No, exactly. You really haven't. And you could go back two weeks to before we started where Chris Froome was the overwhelming favourite. So at this point, we're still in the same situation we were. Yeah, Chris Froome has got a 1 minute 47 lead. But that's nothing with mm-hmm. what was still to be faced. And Bauke yesterday, by that time trial, really set his stall out and confirmed that he's a, a, a genuine contender. And I think Team Sky and Chris Froome will be worried about the fact that, A, he put in a cracking time trial yesterday. Less than a minute behind Froome. Mm, and we know he can climb because Team Sky will have noticed the fact that the only two riders that were able to stick with Froome on Mont Ventoux before everything went spectacularly wrong was Richie Port. Well, they know about Richie, but Bauke Mollema, I'm sure, would have surprised them. And I tell you what, I think Mollema would have put time... I mean, this is this is pure speculation, so treat it as the bullshit that it is. But, you know, I think Mollema could have put time into, into Froome and Port on... Uh, in fact, no way Port. I thought actually Port maybe looked the strongest of the three. Mm. But folks saying Froome would have taken time, I thought he looked the weakest of that trio at the point the accident happened. I mean, still hideously strong, obviously. But, you know, he's by no means the guy that is just leaving people for dead in the mountains that we saw, you know, at the start of the whole marginal gains uh, journey. I think we're we're in for a fascinating final week, and of course, Froome is is more than likely going to be in the top step. But you know, the gaps are absolutely 
tiny after two weeks of hard racing. You know, it's still nothing decisive there. So you know, bring it on. I'm 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 not gagging for it because uh, you know that's a no, I'm saving that now just for extremely exciting stages. But I'm certainly fairly excited about the prospect of tomorrow's racing. Do you know, and even if Chris Froome is the person to win it and stand on the top step at the end of of the the three weeks. You can hardly really complain about that, given... Well, it's not a bad thing. He's, he's animated the race with his <laughs> exciting racing, for God's sake. Exactly so. Well, today, it wasn't the best of stages, was it? But hey, thanks for joining us nonetheless as we try to wrestle some mirth from the maddening monotony of it. We will, of course, be back tomorrow where things will be a whole lot more interesting on Stage 15. So we look forward to speaking to you then on another edition of The Velocast. Velocast.